Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. So, uh, introduction. My name is Mitchell. Typically, I lead worship here, um, but today I've been asked to preach, and I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity. Uh, This is only my second time preaching ever in my entire life, so... Um, now listen, uh, I can see it in your eyes. I know for some of you that might be like, you know, getting on a plane and the pilot saying, this is only my second time ever flying. Um, and so I understand that and I'm an amateur, but I can promise you this. I'll try to stick to the script, be economical, you know, and uh, I won't promise that we'll land in one piece or in the right place, but we're going to land by 1130. So that's the goal. So. Since August, uh, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I've been really enjoying this series to this point, and I hope you guys have as well. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is both crushing and encouraging. It's crushing. Why? Because in it, Jesus continually raises the standard. So it's not enough for us to merely follow the letter of the law. No. It's your heart that matters. It's your thoughts that matter. It's your intentions that matter. And so Jesus exposits the law in a manner that leaves no doubt. We are all, from the lowliest beggar to the most respectable Pharisee, guilty. But it, offer, it also offers us an immense hope. So cast against all this is Jesus' declaration back in chapter 5 that he came not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so as we enter chapter 7, Jesus has reached kind of the 1125 moment of his sermon It's time to land the plane. It's time for life application. And in light of everything he's taught us up to this point, uh, what do we need to take away from this message? So in it, uh, Jesus issues a challenge to his hearers and to us. So if we could, let's open Matthew chapter 7 together, uh, starting with verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you confessing that I'm unworthy to teach anyone about anything, and my wisdom is flawed and lacking. But God, would you teach us what you desire to teach us today? Less of me, more of you. Speak now to us. Amen. So, 
I love sports. I love all sports, uh, but I am sort of cursed with being just a terrible athlete. But still, I love sports. Uh, and if you know me, you know that there's one sport that I love above all others, and that's baseball. And so my love for the Braves is, frankly, almost a little bit embarrassing. I just, I just love it. So I grew up in the 90s watching Bobby Cox argue with terrible umpires. And did you know that he got thrown out of 162 games over the course of his long career? That's a whole season's worth of games that he missed by getting thrown out by these terrible umpires. And uh, every single one of those was the umpire's fault. <laughs> so, I mean, how hard is it to simply make the right call? So imagine my joy when my oldest son, Miles, when he was about eight years old, decided that he wanted to play baseball. Kid pitch. Man, I was so excited. Maybe I was living vicariously through him just a little bit, but I was so, so pumped. And so one night we're at the ballpark. His team's playing a scrimmage game against another team. And the guy who was supposed to be the umpire, he couldn't make it. So the coaches, they looked into the stands and asked if anyone would be willing to umpire the game. And you know, I'd spent a lot of time watching a lot of baseball, and I'd seen a lot of terrible umpires, and I knew that I was the guy for the job. So, you know, I was anxious to get some of that red dirt on my shoes, so I immediately raised my hand. How hard could this be? So, you know, I think I was doing pretty good, calling a fair game, fastball down the middle, that's a strike, change up, low and away, that's a ball. I think that was a fastball, I got something stuck in my eye, let's call it a strike. You know, I was really, really kind of starting to find, find my groove. So fast forward to the bottom of the second inning, a familiar face strides up to the plate. He had his father's eyes, his mother's athletic ability. <laughs> and if you haven't guessed, this is my son, Miles, coming up to bat, and I'm tasked with being his impartial umpire. So, you know, he stands in, fastball down the middle, no swing, strike. Fastball down the middle, no swing, strike. Fastball, maybe just a little off the plate outside. That's a strike. You take a seat, you are out, inning over, take the field, better luck next time. So his coach comes charging out of the dugout. He's questioning my ability as an umpire, questioning my eyesight, questioning whether I should be legally allowed to drive or to vote, and doubtful of whether um, I had the qualifications necessary to do this job. He let me have it. He called me every name in the book, all because I rang up my own kid, you know? See, some dads might have given their child an unfair advantage. Not me. No way. Down 0-2 with a pitch that close, you got to be swinging, buddy. And that's one of many conversations I'm sure he'll be having with his therapist one day. But the reality is calling balls and strikes is a little bit harder than it looks. Have you ever tried to precisely pinpoint the location of a 28-mile-per-hour 20 fastball? It's just not, it's not that easy. It's hard to know, too, when to get the bat off of your shoulder. In fairness to my son, the Braves just got knocked out of the NLDS uh, when their last batter struck out looking. And I'm not, still not happy about that either. But it's harder than it looks. So when I'm reading the Gospels, uh, I apparently like to put myself in the shoes of those who were in attendance. And we know uh, that Jesus went up to that mountain to teach the crowd that had gathered there. 
And given the fact that Jesus was hounded everywhere he went by religious leaders, we can assume that there were many present here as well. So throughout chapters 5 and 6, Jesus spends much of his time teaching about the proper observance of the law. In these chapters, we find that Jesus does not minimize the law, but he magnifies it. He takes the common interpretations of the law, and he helps the audience to see that it's not enough to simply fulfill the letter of the law. God doesn't desire mechanical law-keeping. He desires our hearts. And so in verse, verse, verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. See, that's a little bit of what I faced in my little foray into the world of umpiring. I thought I had the ability to call a fair game, to judge fair and foul, ball and strike. But it turns out I was the one who was foul. Like, literally, I stink at umpiring. And so it's easy to be an expert from afar, but it's much more difficult when you find yourself under a microscope and under examination. So the Pharisees in this day, they were the experts. They were professional law keepers. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus holds up a mirror to them. He lays out the standard and he asks them, do you really want to be judged according to this standard? You may be able to dish it out, but can you take it? Because with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That must have been difficult for them to hear. It's difficult for me. Because my problem extends beyond the realm of baseball. I am quick to judge others and to justify myself. But please don't question my intentions. Please don't examine my motives. Please don't examine my heart. So Isaiah 64, 6 reminds us, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some of us may have grown up hearing it this way. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our best is not good enough, not nearly. Our best is not even good. All our best works are hopelessly wrapped up in sin, corrupted by a fallen nature and a selfish spirit. We have no grounds for boasting according to our works, not you, not me, not the greatest person you've ever known. It's a hard word, but our righteousness is frankly disgusting. So much of what Jesus is explaining to us in these chapters is this. The bar by which we measure ourselves is far too low. As the Apostle Paul says, quoting from the Psalms in Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a heavy indictment we have leveled against us. What hope is there for people like this? What hope is there for people like us? Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not. So what are we to do then? Isn't the world broken? Are we of all people to stand up for and to do what is right? Are we of all people to shine a light on injustice? 
How can we point out the, righteous, the unrighteousness around us without judging? So the answer comes in the next verses. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So when I was in high school, um, I always tried to be a really nice guy, kind to everybody. And high schoolers, I would encourage you to do the same. But on rare occasions, an opportunity would present itself for me to elevate myself in the eyes of my peers, maybe just a little bit at the expense of someone else. And so I'm sad to say in my junior year, I laid hold of such an opportunity. So I grew up in central Georgia, and in central Georgia, uh, we did not often experience bitter cold. We don't often experience it here, but we experience it even less there. And so one very cold morning, several of my classmates and I uh, were walking through the parking lot, uh, converging upon the sidewalk that led up to the building. So my friend Stuart was over to my left, and up in front of us, there's this girl, let's call her Amanda, because that was her name. Her name was Amanda. Uh, she's walking briskly, trying to get to class. And uh, she suddenly slipped on this patch of the substance that was unfamiliar to us in the area called ice, right? So she slips on it, and she went down hard on her back. You know, her books, her supplies scattered all over the pavement. And looking back, you know, I wish I would have rushed to her aid and helped her out and made sure she was okay and helped her collect her things. But what did I do instead? Yeah, I'm sad to admit, I kind of started laughing a little bit hysterically. I looked over my left shoulder to my friend Stuart. I wanted to make sure he'd seen it too. I pointed, I'm like, dude, did you see that? Did you see that? That was so funny. You know, how lucky we were to be able to witness such a hilarious moment, right? This girl just laid out right on the pavement. So at that moment, at the height of my joy, I felt my own feet begin to slip out from under me. The earth shifted a little bit on its axis, and it pitched me towards the sky as my feet went out from under me, and I fell flat on my back on the pavement. My, lung, my lungs, all the air escaped from my lungs. My friend Stuart started laughing, not at the girl we were laughing at, but at me, and uh, it really you know, punctured my pride in that moment. Instant karma. So I think you'll agree, I 100% got what I deserved. And that was the last time I've ever made fun of anyone. So this is an extreme example. I would definitely uh, react differently now. I'd help her up, and then I would, you know, maybe more politely laugh at her to her face. But don't we all secretly love to laugh at other people's misfortune? Do we maybe just maybe like to turn on reality TV or engage in a bit of gossip because it makes us feel just a little bit better about ourselves? More pointedly, isn't there something innate within us that naturally seeks to elevate ourselves at other people's expense? Don't laugh when someone slips and falls on a patch of ice when you have your own patch of ice sitting right there in front of you. And don't microfocus on that speck that's in your brother's eye when you have a log sticking out of your own. So I've often heard people quote this passage and say, don't judge. Is that what Jesus is teaching us here? Is he instructing us just to never, ever judge? I think the answer to that question is an emphatic no. 
The principle here is don't judge others more harshly than you judge yourselves. It's important for us to diagnose and deal with problems we see around us and among us. It's important for us to stand up for an injustice or to address the elephant in the room. It's important for us in Christian community to be willing to have tough conversations with our fellow believers. We don't let sin fester. We deal with it. But the manner in which we deal with it is very important. We deal with it humbly. We get no personal satisfaction from it. We don't use it as an opportunity for scorekeeping. We don't use it as an opportunity to highlight our own holiness. No, we're all in the same boat here. Maybe, maybe we excuse ourselves because we're more enlightened and open-minded than all this. We're not judgmental. That's not us. Those are those awful judgmental church people who do that stuff. They're the real problem. We're not the problem. They are. And can't you see how self-righteousness works exactly the same way in that direction? We all have logs sticking out of our own eyes, every single one of us. So we are all people whose righteousness under our own power is as filthy rags, but we rejoice because we've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We don't boast that our efforts at holiness have borne greater fruit than someone else's striving. No, we boast that our efforts at holiness have been overcome by one who is immeasurably greater than any of us. We boast that we are clothed in the gleaming garment of his righteousness. We are all lost and impoverished apart from that. So that brings us to the weirdest part of the passage. Verse six, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It's a bit of a difficult verse. It's a difficult verse also to reconcile with the verses that come before it. It feels a little bit out of place, but let's give it a try. So according to Jewish law, uh, pigs were unclean. Dogs, too, were known to be scavengers. There's no way of knowing where those dogs have been, after all. And so they didn't enjoy the same privileged position in their society and in Jewish society at that time that they enjoy today in our society. So they, they too were also often considered unclean. And the pearls in this case would have been, you know, the good news of God's kingdom, the message of the gospel. So I have to imagine that many of those in the audience would have equated the mention of pigs with anything and everything that's not Jewish. But one thing that jumps out to me uh, here in this verse, chapter or verse six, is that, man, these are some really vicious pigs. Like, I did not know that pigs would just turn and attack you for, you know, any little mild, you know, infraction. But apparently it's a thing. And I know it's a thing because September 28th of just this year, this very thing happened. Kingsland, Texas. The headline reads, my grandma's being attacked by a random pig. Texas family targeted by out-of-control swine. Resident Wendy Goldstein told KTBC that the pig, which she estimates is around 300 pounds, attacked her daughter and then turned on her parents after it got into her home. My grandma's being attacked by a random pig, a child said in a 911 call during the incident. Now grandpa's being attacked, KTBC reported. Goldstein said the black and white pig was foaming at the mouth before it attacked her daughter and then charged into the family's home. 
My mom tried to lay on top of him and to crunch him down until the cops got here to get him. But, but he overpowered her and got on top of her, Goldstein told reporters on Tuesday. He had her flattened like an accordion. The pig was shot with a non-lethal pepper ball, but it ran off before anyone could corral it. Apparently, the pig did not want to give up and returned on Tuesday for another shot at the family. <laughs> this time, it targeted Goldstein's boyfriend. I'm standing inside my parents' house with a hammer and a knife, trying to defend myself and defend my family at any cost. My whole family's scared. They feel like they're prisoners in their own home, Goldstein said Tuesday. Got to watch out. Pigs on the loose. So why do I tell this heartbreaking story? For no reason whatsoever. I just have a microphone, a captive audience, and I thought it was kind of funny. But... Additionally, uh, if we can try to, you know, kind of bring it back, uh, the gospel is offensive. And perhaps the Pharisees got to uh, Applebee's after the Sermon on the Mount, and over lunch, they realized that maybe, just maybe, they had misidentified the pigs. What good is a pearl to a hungry pig? The pig just wants something to eat. If you give a pearl to a hungry pig, it will just make it angry. Pigs have a reputation for flattening jewelers like bedazzled accordions, apparently. So likewise, what good is the gospel to one who is already righteous? If a man is righteous in his own eyes, nothing will enrage him like telling him that his best isn't good enough. The gospel's offensive to a man like this. He wants validation. He wants his ego indulged. He wants people to tell him that he's right. He wants to only hear things that he agrees with, but he doesn't want Jesus. A man who's righteous in his own eyes can't receive the gospel. It's a hard word, but Jesus says, don't waste your time with these people. Jesus can't give his, righteous, his righteousness to one who's counting on his own. But what about the rest of us? What about for those of us who are in need? In verse seven, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So, so for those of us who have worked hard, for those of us who have done our best, for those of us who have piled up awards and accolades for ourselves and we are banking on and counting on those things, Jesus may not have much to offer. For those of us who have justified ourselves through our own works, we may not see a need for him. But for those of us who are needy, for those of us who are poor and beggarly, for those of us who barely have the strength to crawl up to the door and to knock, he stands eager and ready to open the door to us. He will. He will. He will receive you. If we ask him for bread, he will not give us a stone. If we ask him for help, he will not greet us with condemnation. He is a giver of good gifts to those who are eager to receive him. So the last verse in this passage ranks right up there with uh, cleanliness is next to godliness or God helps those who help themselves. 
The difference is that this one's actually in the Bible. Verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So Jesus boils down the law and the prophets to this simple statement. Treat others the way that you want to be treated. Doesn't that seem just a little too simplistic? How is it that this works? Remember, the law is a mirror. It reveals our need. None of us can ever keep it perfectly. The more we try, the more we come up short. But don't we hope that the people, the people around us will deal with us gently when we wrong them? Don't we hope that people will be willing to overlook our ignorance and offer help to us without lording it over us? Don't we hope that when despite our best intentions, we fail to make good on our promises, that those around us would be willing to bear with our unmet expectations? Don't we want people to be our cheerleaders while simultaneously bearing with us in our missteps? But doesn't the law demand perfection from us? Doesn't it require that we adhere to it perfectly, never wavering? And so many of us, we put on a good act, but if we're honest, don't we worry that maybe all our efforts simply aren't good enough? So many of us maintain an appearance that we have it all together, an appearance of holiness, but when it comes down to it, we know that beneath the surface, we are a wreck. All our efforts are insufficient. When it comes to our relationships with others, it's important for us to be empathetic, to make an effort to walk a mile in the other person's shoes. But what would be truly horrifying would be to invite someone to walk a mile in our shoes, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be horrifying if someone could see the world through your eyes and to see your actions through your intentions, to know truly your struggles, your insecurities, and your deepest, darkest fears? So the law and the prophets provide just some amazing, excellent instruction and some great wisdom. But that's not all they do. They show us who we are. And in the eyes of the law, none are righteous. It's terrible news, but... In totality, the law and the prophets bear witness to something far greater. Paul writes again later in Romans chapter 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Remember, the law is a mirror. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how do we want to be treated? What would we have others do to us? To show us charity, to show us goodwill, to take all our shortcomings, our offenses, our personal affronts, and sweep them under the rug. And that is precisely what Jesus did for us. And in the verses we just read in verse 25, 
It says he passed over former sins. He overlooks our wrongs. He sees past our offenses. That is a heartwarming truth. How does he do this? It's a gift from God, the giver of good gifts given to us by putting forward his son, Jesus, as a propitiation through his blood. So as we mentioned before, this is only my second time ever preaching, and you're probably not going to want to look to me as the authority on what propitiation means, you know? It's a big and loaded term. But let me say this, and deep down within this is the best news of all, even though it may not sound like it, but the requirements of the law are real. They're not optional. The wrath that we incur, incur as a result of violating the law, it's real. God is no liar. God is just. So he can't sit idly by and choose to just ignore our infractions. He can't sit idly by and ignore our sin. And you and I and everyone sitting along the mountainside with Jesus that day, we all know we're guilty. There's nowhere to hide from that fact. Remember what Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that we mentioned earlier. Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And God put forward Jesus to be our perfect law keeper in our place and to die a horrific death on a Roman cross taking on himself the wrath that we deserved. He took our wrath upon himself, and what do we get in return? We get his righteousness. So as people who have joyfully received this great and costly grace, we happily give great and costly grace to others. As people who have received this great and costly gift, we joyfully give great and costly gifts to others. As people who recognize that Jesus laid down his life for us, we laid down our lives, our preferences, our opinions for the sake of others. We've been blessed to be a blessing. Judge not that you be not judged. Our example here is Jesus himself. He is our just judge, and he's also our justifier it is essential that we confront sin, that we meet it head on, but we meet it head on in our own lives first. Like Jesus, we lay down our lives first. We lay down the fact that we think we're right. We lay down our rightful position and we become a servant of all. So if you're here today and you feel that God's speaking to you, if you've never received this by faith, this propitiation through his blood, this great exchange, knock, the door will be open to you. Ask, you'll receive. Seek, you will find. It's a certainty. So if you want to talk to someone about that, someone's going to be down front at the next steps table. They'd love to talk to you. Don't delay. You may think that you're too far gone, but God is eager to receive you. Perhaps you're here today and you find yourself in the midst of relational strife. Maybe you've been unwilling to acknowledge your own need for forgiveness and your resistance to forgive others. 
Let's make a plan and make it right. Let's not be people who seek to justify ourselves, but let's be people who put our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.